one of them was brought out in the sermonette. Uh, time is going by quickly, and Passover will be here before we can realize it. It's about six months away. There's an intercalary year, an uh, added month in between here, and we're a month past the feast or thereabouts. So we're going to be coming up on Passover before we know it. And what often happens about a week before Passover is that our ministers get all kinds of requests, or at least one or several requests, for baptism. Right when our ministers are terribly busy and it's difficult to get out there and visit with people at that point in time, but people want to be baptized right now. So we need to start thinking about that well in advance and not wait till the last minute because your minister may not be able to find the time to do it with all of his other duties at that time, and especially if he is finalizing other baptism counselings. So in today's sermon, I'll be addressing the subject of baptism, very well-known, understood subject, at least by most people who have been baptized. They think they, they know it. And what one, what one must consider looking forward to baptism or looking back on that previous commitment. Because as we get closer to Passover, again, it's half, half a year away, but as we get closer, we certainly want to be examining ourselves in relation to the commitment that we made, in some cases many years ago, decades ago for some. But I'll also address specifics that apply to different groups of people, different categories of people. But let's first address what every baptism candidate must understand and what those of us who have been baptized need to grow in understanding. Because I know that when I was baptized, uh, after I was baptized, I began to understand things I didn't understand before, and I wondered, well, boy, was my baptism even valid? I didn't understand this or that or something else. So turn, first of all, to Mark, the first chapter. Mark, the first chapter. And in verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in verse 14, and this is the message that Jesus brought, the gospel. He says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel, or the good news, of the kingdom of God. And you might have a, a note here on that where it says of the kingdom of God is not in certain manuscripts. But it really doesn't matter in one sense because the next verse clarifies it for sure. It says in saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the first thing that Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry was to repent and believe in the gospel, or believe the gospel. So repentance is very much a part of the message that he gave. It's absolutely essential. Dr. Meredith gave a sermon some years ago uh, on the R word, uh, repent, something that is left out of many uh, ministries, they may talk about repentance, but then they say the law of God is done away. Not all ministries, but many of them do say that. And so what is it that one must repent of? 
Well, repent of sin. What is sin? Sin is a transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. So this is something that we must do, but we must also believe the gospel. We have a booklet on the subject, Do You Believe the True Gospel? And I found that very refreshing after I came out of Worldwide, even being a minister for many years there, 25 years. It was very refreshing to do a Bible study on the gospel or the kingdom of God. And it's surprising how full it is in the New Testament. There's so many statements about it, the kingdom of God is like, and then there's a parable and repent and believe the gospel, this, this sort of thing. So knowing what the gospel is, the true message, not the false message that's just given out there or the incomplete message that is given in religion that says that just believe on Jesus and you shall be saved. And, of course, that is correct in the, to a degree. Uh, that is scriptural. But there's so much more to it than that simple statement. What is belief? What is the meaning of belief? And what kind of belief is required there? So that, that booklet, Do You Believe the True Gospel, is a very good resource to review from time to time. And I think you'll find it exciting and refreshing as you go through the scriptures and just see how much the good news of the kingdom of God was a part of Jesus' message. And it was really the heart and the core of it. Over in Acts, the second chapter, another passage of Scripture that is so central to our understanding. In Acts, the second chapter, and verse 36, we begin there. This is on the day of Pentecost, and the Apostle Peter preached a very powerful sermon on that day. And verse 36, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, he's talking to a group of people that just, uh, uh, you know, weeks before, uh, seven weeks before, approximately, had crucified Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to them that they had crucified him. And no doubt, many of the people that were in the audience, there were 3,000 people that day. Many of them had been there, and they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And it's important for us to realize that it isn't those people back there alone who crucified Christ, but every single one of us is responsible for the death of Christ because of our sins. That's why he died. And it doesn't matter that the rest of the world has sinned and is responsible, we are personally, individually responsible for the death of Christ. And that's a realization that we do need to come to, especially as we come toward baptism. And looking back on our baptism, did we really comprehend that? Do we, do we understand the depth of our guilt for having crucified Christ and the thankfulness that we should have for the fact that he did die so that we could have life and to be thankful for that on a continual basis. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Yes, they must have been cut to the heart because many of them knew what they had done. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Where do we go from here? What can we do? 
And Peter said to them, just believe on the Lord and that everything's okay? No. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the command was to repent, but also to be baptized. And it's amazing to me that even people who were once ministers of the Church of God have gone out saying, well, baptism is really not necessary. How can anyone think that when you have statements such as this? Repent and let every one of you be baptized. It's not an optional thing. We understand that there are people who, for whatever reason, may not be able to be baptized. I remember one time we had a fellow that was in an iron lung. He had had polio as a child. He could get out of that iron lung for a period of time, but he had to spend much of his day laying down in this big machine that uh, they had there at that time, like a big cylinder. I think that they may have more up-to-date equipment today, but that's the way it was back then. And we had to baptize him in a bathtub, uh, fill it up as high as we could, and have about three of us trying to keep him under. But there are other individuals maybe that are very much overweight, cannot get into a a facility, a a bathtub of some sort or a, a pond or pool or whatever it may be. We understand that there could be a few very, very, very rare exceptions to it, and God does look on the heart. I know in all my ministry, I think one time we had someone that we deemed it uh, really not possible to, to baptize this lady uh, because of a number of infirmities, and we, you know, we prayed for God to overlook the fact. I mean, God is not held to a standard that is impossible. And I suppose it was technically possible one way or another, but uh, it could have been very, very dangerous under the circumstances. So there are very rare circumstances like that, but essentially we need to be baptized. And if we haven't been baptized, if we haven't repented and been baptized, our sins won't be totally forgiven in that sense. I don't mean that young people can't pray for God to forgive them, and there is that certain forgiveness there, but to really have the death penalty removed and sins forgiven, we should be baptized. That's that's an essential. It's one of the things that God requires of us. Now, when it comes to repentance, we have to ask, what do we repent of? And I'd like to go over to Isaiah, the 55th chapter. And here it is interesting. It speaks of people who are living their lives, and is not satisfying. I remember when I lived in Michigan, every weekend, every Friday, you'd have this massive humanity going up I-27 or Interstate 75, uh, going up to the area for camping or fishing or uh, just recreation in general. If it was the wintertime, snowmobiling, skiing, but it was all ice fishing then. But there was this mass of humanity, and then Sunday afternoon, this same mass would be coming back down to Detroit and Pontiac and even down to Toledo and other places, the southern part of Michigan or the northern part of Ohio. And as they come back, they're all wiped out and tired, and it's easy to get caught up in some of that, and you begin to to, uh, experience some of that, and you realize that, you know, The effort doesn't 
there's not enough reward to uh, satisfy the effort that you have to go through. And I remember a very dear friend uh, that I had that I, I baptized, he and his wife, and uh, married them. And he was 11 years younger than me, but we went up one time. We started very late on a Saturday night and got up there uh, in the early morning hours where we're going. And we came back the next day, and as he, he said, I'm not sure that the... Uh, the reward is worth the effort. And I thought, well, he's kind of growing up. I already began to figure that out. Uh, but he says here in verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. It's talking about people spending all of their energies, all of their money for that which does not satisfy. And people begin to realize that as they get older, that a lot of the things that seem so exciting when you're young just don't satisfy. There's something missing there. I find it interesting that age 27 is an interesting age when you look at at uh, rock stars, especially Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, uh, oh, what's some of the others. Uh, I can see him. I can't think of think of his name right off. But it, it is amazing. Uh, Amy Winehouse, I think, was the same age. Right around the age of 27, either 27 or right around it, they crash and they burn, committing suicide or overdoses of drugs. Because here are people who start out relatively young and they get all of this success and something is missing. Something is missing. Or they fear that they're going to lose what they have there because they really know what they are anyway and they're afraid of losing something. I don't know all the psychological reasons, but I can guess a few of them. And I feel sorry for those young people who find success on these various programs out there, America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent or uh, The X Factor, all those different programs, and you have young people having this tremendous amount of success all, all of a sudden, and they have no idea what they're getting into and how they're going to lose all of their privacy, where they can't go to a restaurant or someplace else where there's not somebody there that wants their autograph and they lose a lot of the privacy that they have, and they find that what they've been striving for all their life, fame and fortune, isn't the answer to uh, that which is in them. He says in verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So there are two things that are mentioned here. Let the wicked forsake his way. The things that we do. Let's take the example of uh, smoking, which hopefully nobody here has that problem, but it wouldn't surprise me if somebody does. Uh, although our society's gotten away from that, although vaping is, is now the, uh, the substitute, and it has nicotine and becomes addictive too. But let's say that one comes into the church and he looks at his life and says, okay, I, I've got to stop smoking, I've got to stop over-drinking, I've got to stop running around my wife. You know, all those things that they want to repent of, those are his ways. Let him forsake his ways. And oftentimes people do 
come to a certain repentance of those things that they did that they realized were wrong. But the next part of it says, and the unrighteous man, his thoughts. And it's important that we not only repent of the things we did, but also of why we did it. So if someone smokes, for example, it's right and good to stop smoking, repent of that physical thing, that way. But unless one understands why he started smoking in the first place, which was vanity, trying to fit in with the crowd, or if it's drugs, looking for some sort of a high or whatever it might be, unless one understands the lust and the coveting that went along with it and the pride, you don't want him to be a cowboy or chic and sophisticated Virginia Slim, unless you understand the thought process of what were made of a vanity and jealousy and lust and greed and resentment toward authority and all of those emotions that we have and all those thoughts we have, unless we repent of them, we're simply going to substitute one sin for another eventually. Because if we don't overcome pride and vanity, then it's going to come out some other way later on. We might stop robbing banks, as an example, but... If the greed is still there, you may cheat on your income tax or cheat someplace else. Cheat on your tithes, for example. So he says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. These are the things that you have to come to realize you've got to change. You've got to repent of not only your ways, the things you did, but of what you are. I didn't really totally comprehend that. I I heard the words... Repent of what you are, and I knew that, you know, wrong thoughts, I could understand that. But to realize that, yes, me, I, I have to totally change everything. Everything about the motivations that I have in life. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is very merciful. And when we come to repentance, We come to a certain level of repentance, but that level of repentance must increase over time where we see ourselves more clearly and where we repent of those things that we see and change. As Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's where it all ends. It's a way that seems right to a man. How often we say, well... It seems to me, or here's how I see it, or here's how I look at it. And any time we start the conversation that way, we need to stop right there and ask, okay, how does God see it? What does the Bible say about this subject? I know that that's a hard thing to do, but we really do need to think of that in that way. Let's turn over to Proverbs, the third chapter, Proverbs 3. And we'll begin in verse 1. There's so much here. This is a very uh, well-known chapter. We often quote verses 5, 6, 7. But let's start with verse 1. It says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. So as, as though a father is talking to his son, and he says, Don't forget my law. Now, We don't want to forget God's law, but even children need to understand that 
dad may know something that I don't know. He has lived a little bit longer. But let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Length of days, long life, and peace harkens back to the fifth commandment, the commandment with promise. Honor your mother and father that your days may be long upon the land. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Mercy and truth, both having a merciful heart and also living according to the truth. There is truth. This world says, well, your truth is no better than my truth and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, there is solid truth and there is solid moral truth. And it's found in the word of God. It says, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. So when we do what is right, when we take mercy and truth and we live by those things, then not only are we going to find favor with God, but also with man. But of course, more importantly, with God. Because if man doesn't recognize or give you favor, certainly the one that counts is God. And then he says, verse 5, this is a very well-known passage of Scripture, Trust in the eternal with all your heart. Think about that, with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. You see, this is the problem. This is why we need to come to repentance, because humanly speaking, we do trust in ourselves. We do lean on our own understanding. That's what Adam and Eve did. They leaned on their own understanding. And we as human beings grow up that way, leaning on our own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the eternal and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. And you could read the rest of it. Notice verse 9. It says, Honor the eternal with your possessions. Young people who grew up in the church, I think, are many times taught to tithe. But sometimes, as they get a little bit older and actually have income, they may reason around, well, I'm not baptized, so I don't have to do this. Well, uh, does that mean you can kill because you're not baptized? Or a lot of the other things that people want to do, uh, fornicate and... Uh, Steal, because that's really what it is when you aren't faithful in your tithes. But learning at a young age to do those things and maintaining it makes it a whole lot easier. It says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first first fruits of all your increase. And he says that your barns will be filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, verse 11, do not despise the chastening of the eternal, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father, the son in whom he delights. So our fathers correct us. My father certainly did for my benefit. It didn't seem that way at the time, but not only my father, but my mother as well. And it was always for our benefit, for their caring and their love for us. In Ephesians, the second chapter, we read that the course of this world is directed by the prince of the power of the air. We're all familiar with that, Ephesians 2, verse 2. 
talks about the course of this world. That's what we have tended to follow. And we are to recognize who it is that's directing the course of this world. And over in First uh, John 2, verses 15 to 17, says, Don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Uh, for the, you know, the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride of life are not of the Father, but that's of the world, and the world is going to pass away. This world that seems so exciting when we're young is going to pass away. And it doesn't matter whether you're young today or whether you were young 50 years ago or 60 years ago. We were all young at one point in time. And the world seems so exciting. And the fads seem so exciting. But as we get older, we can look back and say, you know, it wasn't so great. It wasn't so wonderful. And a lot of times we think back, those of us who are older, well, you know, the movies back then were better. Well, I'll tell you what, when you look at the old movies today, some of them weren't so good as you remembered them. Maybe it was because we were naive and didn't realize all the subtle uh, innuendo that was there. It wasn't all perfect when we were young. We sometimes think, my generation, if we have a dance, we've got to have 50s music or 60s music. Well, you know, was that so wonderful and so great? Uh, was it all that much better? I don't think so. You know, don't let anybody tell you that you're not in love. You're 16 and you know it all. And don't let, let anybody say that you're not in love. Um, there are a lot of, uh, lot of messages there that, when you think about it, are not so wonderful. And believing in Christ, believing in his sacrifice is absolutely essential. Notice First Peter, the first chapter, First Peter 1. And this is just a, a brief overview of some things. When you have baptism counseling, which it's always good to have, a minister can help you to really look into yourself and see what you need to change and what you don't understand. Oftentimes, it's a matter of helping you to understand something that you just simply would not otherwise understand. But First Peter 1, verses 17 to 19, it says here, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with, pressure, with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. That's, a, that's really a mouthful when you think about it. We were not redeemed with corruptible things. We could not be, we cannot buy back our life. When we sin, we bring the death penalty upon ourselves. And everybody has sinned. And so we all have the death penalty hanging over us. And baptism is all about how we can get that death penalty removed. You can't pay to have that done. You know, in Catholicism, you, you, you know, you can give offerings and prayers and all kinds of things. You can buy your way out of it through the Hail Marys and Our Fathers and doing the rosary and also by giving offerings and visiting churches and shrines and all that sort of thing. That's not how our sins are forgiven. 
But we are redeemed not by silver and gold from our aimless conduct, our conduct that was just random, whatever seemed good at the moment. How often we do things and then wonder later, why did I do that? What was I thinking? Our aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. In other words, just going along with the world the way it's been. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So Jesus emptied himself, or the word emptied himself, came down on this earth, lived a physical life, and was brutally slain so that you and I could have our sins forgiven, so that we could have life. And we know that there's more to it that isn't just the death of Christ, it is the life of Christ living in us, Christ living his life in us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what brings life. It's all a part of the whole big picture there. But these are things that we need to come to understand and recognize our culpability in the death of Christ and that precious blood that was shed for us and how thankful we should be. I I hope that we regularly on our knees thank God for that sacrifice, that our sins can be forgiven and we can pass over that guilt that we once had and forget about the things that we did because we all have things we're ashamed of. And isn't it wonderful to know that those things are past, it's gone. We don't have to be guilty of them anymore because that has been forgiven. What a wonderful thing it is. People are racked by guilt and oftentimes they, uh, you know, people are racked with so much guilt that they, they do terrible things. You know, just uh, yesterday, I guess it was, or the day before, was it? I, I forget. There was an accident on a on a uh, filming uh, set. Alec Baldwin, I guess you've all heard that, accidentally shot somebody. It was a Western, I guess. Something went wrong. Somebody made a mistake. You know, people who are not used to handling guns that condemn guns all the time probably haven't had a course on how to use a gun properly. And there there are two things you learn very quickly. You never point the gun at anybody else. And the other thing is uh, it's loaded. It's always loaded. No matter what, you, you pick up a gun, it's loaded. I remember one time, I won't say where, several of us were going someplace and we had uh, some young people that were with us, and uh, we were taking them to an activity. And we were visiting a, a dear old friend from a previous pastorate. We were in the kitchen, and we were standing around talking, and all of a sudden there was this noise. And I, they were talking about kind of a sulfur smell with the, the water and the, and the ice. And, the, and, and I thought the, the, the uh, refrigerator blew up. That was my first thought. Something gone wrong. Well, obviously, I'm look, you know, it's right there. Well, the the uh, the father here knew exactly what it was because he knew his son was showing another teenager his rifle, and they didn't know that it was loaded. And he 
happened to pull the trigger and this bullet came through the wall, split into two places, went outside the kitchen where all of us were standing. It's always loaded. Always loaded. You treat a gun that way. Can you imagine the guilt that Alec Baldwin is going to have that he's got to live with? But you know, if he understood what we're talking about here, we know that he'd never forget it any more than the Apostle Paul really forgot everything that he had done. But he could recognize that that penalty has been paid for by Christ. I, I can only imagine what it must be like to have something that serious. And yet, that's what we're guilty of because we killed Christ. And so if you, you kind of put it in that context, what if you were Alec Baldwin? Well, you are who you are, and you and I are guilty of the death of Christ. But when we're baptized, we're forgiven of that guilt. It's passed over. It's a wonderful thing, the truth that God has given to us. In Acts, the eighth chapter... We have the example of the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's interesting how that there are a couple lessons here. One is how teachable he was, and that, of course, is so important when we come to baptism. Do we have a, a meek attitude, a teachable attitude? And that's something that we in the ministry look for probably as much as anything else. It's the attitude, the frame of mind. And so here we find that this, uh, uh, this eunuch was reading something, and Philip came up there, and he said, Do you understand what you're reading? He says, I ask of you, whom does the prophet uh, you know, say this? That's verse 34, then verse 35. Peter opened his mouth, and he explained the Scripture, preached Jesus to him. And as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, obviously, there was a lot that was stated there. Uh, the point I wanted to make, first of all, was verse 31. How can I unless someone guides me? This, The humility of this individual who... Uh, apparently was someone of renown there. And he, he said, look, how can I? I need somebody to help me. I don't know it all. So often as ministers, we go out and we visit people and they want to teach us. I don't mean you. Well, maybe some of you way back when. But, uh, you know, when I'm talking about visiting a new person. And I remember one time visiting a couple ladies, a couple of us, and visiting them. And they'd been studying for about six months, and they were still smoking. And, you know, they were sitting out there outside uh, where they're smoking and everything. And they wanted a church that had a roundtable discussion where we kind of all sit around and give our input in it. And as one said, well, I think it's arrogant for you to think that you know everything. And I said, well, first of all, I don't know everything. And I didn't say it, but I could have said it. But I think what's really arrogant is for someone who's been studying for six months, hasn't even been baptized yet, to think that, that she knows more 
that people have been studying this for decades. It's human nature. And we need to come to that humility. But this man, this eunuch, he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And there's so much more to that statement. Obviously, he had been counseled by Philip, explaining the Scriptures to him. And there's much more than is recorded here. But he did believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And obviously, uh, he's talking here about being a sheep led to the slaughter. So he had to explain all of that, how Christ died for us. And so they went down into the water and were baptized. He wasn't sprinkled, but he went into the water and was baptized. Now, these are basics. These are just basics. And, you know, you don't have to know every doctrine of the church in order to be baptized. In fact, Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and I don't remember where to find this, uh, either in his autobiography or uh, someplace it was in writing, I believe, but if it wasn't in writing, I remember hearing it because Mr. Armstrong was there at Ambassador College when I was there. He began traveling after my freshman year, actually after my sophomore year, uh, around the world a lot. But he still came back and talked a lot. But one of the things that separated him from the Church of God's Seventh Day at the very beginning is that they were trying to say you have to teach clean and unclean meats and various other things before someone is baptized. And he went over to Matthew, the 28th chapter, Matthew 28. And I bring this out because sometimes uh, our, our younger, zealous ministers counsel people for baptism for many hours over many counseling sessions. And it's important that we uh, counsel enough. But nevertheless, sometimes people go to extremes and he said, uh, Matthew 28, verse 19, Matthew 28:19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in, or as it should be, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptism comes first, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As he pointed out, that baptism came first, and teaching... All these other things came secondary. Now, there, there's a balance in that, obviously, and Mr. Armstrong understood that. There are certain things that have to be there. But Mr. Armstrong looked at an attitude of repentance. He was looking at that first and foremost. It's probably a good idea to let people know about clean and unclean meats so they don't show up at the potluck with uh, pork roast. But I remember a lady that I counseled for baptism many years ago. She was, wasn't able to come to services. She was uh, significantly overweight. She lived three hours from the nearest church. And um, it wasn't until after he was baptized, I forget how long, that the subject of clean and unclean meats came up. And I explained it to her, and pork was her favorite meat. And I saw her about six months later, and we discussed it again. She said, well, I can see it's right. I can see this is right, that I shouldn't eat pork. And once my freezer is empty, I'll not buy any more. <laughs> now, she was in her early 80s. And, you know, I think God cut her a little bit of slack there. I think he understood. 
saw the attitude was right. And this was a major thing for her. After 80 years of being her favorite food, she was willing to give up on it, but she'd come through the Depression. You don't waste things, and so uh, we'll let God judge that. But Mr. Armstrong understood that somebody doesn't have to know every last doctrine or every, you know, uh, last uh, portion of a doctrine in order to be baptized. But there are things that must be understood. For example, Romans, the sixth chapter. I won't go into it now. But the meaning of baptism, why we're baptized, what the purpose of baptism is, you know, burying the old man. And, of course, if you are counsel for baptism, you certainly will be instructed on Romans, the sixth chapter, the first seven verses, if not even further uh, in Romans, the next chapter and the chapter afterward. Uh, but the meaning of baptism must be there. What am I doing? I'm going into a watery grave. I'm putting to death the old man, the old person. I'm going to come up to a new way of life. And I'm going to allow Christ to live in me. Luke, the 14th chapter, talks about counting the cost. We must count the cost of what we're doing. That this, that I have to put everything aside and secondary to Christ. As it says there in Luke, the 14th chapter, again, beginning at about verse 26, we've got to count the cost. We've got to be willing to set aside mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and our own life also. Unless we're willing to put that secondary to Christ, he says, you cannot be my disciple. And yet I've known people who have followed others out of the church specifically because they're the family. I remember a lady saying, when asked what to do when the church was going astray, she said, well, I don't know. I don't know what my boys are going to do. That's not the right answer. So we have to understand what it's all about. And we have the booklet, Christian Baptism, its real meaning. I've given you just a little bit here, but that goes into greater detail. We have the Bible study course, and it talks about repentance. I forget which lesson that is, but uh, you can look that up. Uh, That's very important that we understand repentance. We understand the sacrifice of Christ. We understand the gospel. We have booklet on that subject. And Christian Baptism, its real meaning. Now, committing ourselves to, to God, to regular prayer, study, fasting, developing a personal relationship with God, that's important as well. And when people come into the church to think of, of praying for a half hour, that's how do you do that? But you start with a few minutes, and you expand it, and you learn how to pray, how to study. And there has to be this regular prayer and study and Occasional fasting that goes along with it. I have to admit, when I uh, first came into the church, even after graduating from Ambassador College, study was always uh, difficult to get in. Prayer, I had that down. At least I had it down to do it. Now, it's easy to be sleepy time prayer, but uh, your mind wander. I have a very 
chaotic mind at times that goes from here to there someplace else. And I'm thinking of one thing, and pretty soon I'm off on a tangent someplace. I still struggle with that, but try to bring it back. But nevertheless, uh, study was something that I had to learn that daily study every single day, not skipping days. Now, you may, from time to time, have to get up really early for a flight or something like that, and you may not have the time for it. But essentially, there has to be that, that communication between you and God. You're, you study for God to teach you. You pray to talk to God. And occasionally, we need to fast. But there's a personal relationship that we must develop with God. Sometimes we uh, counsel people with marriage situations and uh, you ask, well, do you think your maid is converted? Well, I've never seen him pray or I've never seen her study. That would be a problem. It might be part of the problem in the marriage relationship. You know, there are different categories of people seeking or at least needing baptism. And so I'd like to uh, just touch very briefly on each of these. The first involves those who are previously baptized perhaps by immersion, as in the Baptist church. Was your baptism valid when you were baptized before? Do you need to be baptized again? Well, what were the circumstances? What did you understand? Were you baptized when you were 12 years of age and really weren't mature enough to really understand what it's all about? When you're 12 or 14 years of age, you may think you know it all. But as time goes by you're going to have temptations and issues that are going to come up that you never fully comprehended at that age. And maybe you, quote, backslid for a number of years, got away from your commitment. Well, obviously, uh, you do need to check and see if you need to be baptized with a minister because that's probably the case. What did you repent of? What was it that you repented of before you were baptized? Did you know the true God? Did you keep the Sabbath and the holy days? Well, no, I, 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 I kept Sunday. I've heard that before. Well, I was keeping Sunday. I, I just didn't know. So my ignorance, I guess, excuses that somehow. Well, I, I just didn't know it was, uh, it was wrong to steal. Uh, I, I just didn't know that that's not an excuse. Uh, we understand it, but it's not an excuse. What about the law, uh, laws of clean and unclean meats? Did you understand that? That's probably not a, as big of a deal as some other things. But did you think you were going to heaven or you would fry in hell if you weren't saved? Was that your mindset at the time? What was the purpose for life? What is the true gospel? You know, Jesus said, believe the gospel. Time is fulfilled. Repent and believe in the gospel. Did you really understand that? I think when we start looking at those questions, we find that most people coming out of a Protestant background, um, even more than a Catholic background, they pretty well know that they were off track once they, they get on. But from Protestant background, a, a Baptist background, people are very sincere. They may have repented of being a, a drunk, a, a, you know, a fighter or a brawler, uh, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But did they really understand, did they repent? I mean, I like to put it this way. Did they repent of false religion, of a false Christianity? 
Notice over in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, very familiar scripture once again, 2 Corinthians 11. This is important for people that are in that category. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. He says, For if you, for if he who comes practices, or I'm sorry, preaches another Jesus. Well, what is it that's being preached in the world today? And these other churches, a long, you know, a long-haired, effeminate Christ who did away with his father's law. How he looked probably was not as important as what he taught and what he did. But even there, we don't want to have a, a false picture of Christ in our mind. He who comes pre- and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, just a totally different spirit and approach toward worship, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it, he says. And then he talks about how there are false apostles, verse 13, deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, because that's the way that Satan is. So when someone comes to us and wants to know, do I need to be baptized again? I guess the first question is, what? What did you really understand before? Did you understand the truth of God or were you just going along with the world? And yes, you repented of certain things, getting drunk, running around on your wife, uh, uh, stealing, uh, brawling, all that sort of thing. Well, those are great things to repent of. But did you repent of false religion? Remember in Matthew, the 24th chapter, verses 4 and 5, the the first sign of the end of the age that Christ gave was false, false Christianity. Sometimes people say, well, false religion. It isn't just false religion. It was false Christianity. In other words, they come and say that they're preaching in the name of Christ, saying that Jesus is the Christ, not Buddha, not Muhammad, but they're talking about Christianity, false Christianity. And we have many scriptures that we could turn to on that. One of the problems that people have is that they wonder, well, um, is it wrong uh, to be baptized again? Am I am I uh, being offensive to God if I if I'm baptized again? Well, let's notice over in Acts 19th chapter, Acts 19, because people even in the world, do repent of certain things. They do repent of getting drunk and running around on their wife and stealing and brawling. They, they do repent of some of those things. But is that enough? Is that, is that all that's required there? Notice in Acts, the 19th chapter, verse 1, it says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, Well, we've never heard such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Well, into what then were you baptized? And they answered, Into John's baptism. In other words, they were baptized by John. And Paul said, verse 4, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So John 
baptized people for repentance and then said, look to one that is coming after me. And when they heard this, notice verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. So they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but they were rebaptized in that sense. Because they, they really didn't have the big picture, the whole picture. And they needed to be rebaptized, even though they had come to a certain level of repentance. And in this world, we have people that have come to a certain level of repentance. But the question is, did they also receive the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit come? Well, we know it comes by the laying on of hands. You can read Acts, the 8th chapter, verses 14 to 18. You can read back in John the Baptist in Matthew, the 3rd chapter, where he was calling upon the people to repent, but pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, or one coming after him, that uh, he was not worthy to tie his sandals, as it says there. But the laying on of hands is an issue if baptized in some churches of God. One has to ask the question, with some of these churches of God, I'm, I'm going to say some, I'm not going to say all, but some of the churches of God, you have to wonder, do their leaders have the authority from Christ to be to give the Holy Spirit? Is God going to work through them in that way? And I remember a, a couple that came from one of those groups, and they came to the conclusion that they... They felt that they were baptized, they had repented, they had been counseled, they had been re repentant, but they didn't really feel like that leader had the authority to give the Holy Spirit, and so they wanted to have the laying on of hands, which we did. In retrospect, probably should have baptized them again because certain issues came up after that where we realized they weren't even, they didn't really understand their nature. And they got their feelings hurt over some little thing some trivial thing that somebody had done that wasn't even intended to be offensive to them. So we see here that it's not wrong to have a second baptism, but we don't do that frivolously. And if you've been baptized in the church and you just get off a little bit, then you want to be rebaptized and be rebaptized. I've found over the years that when people have been baptized in the church of God and they go astray, and then they want to be rebaptized. that the second one isn't any better than the first one. And some have been baptized three times in the church of God, and usually it doesn't work any better because there's something fundamentally wrong. Even though they're counseled, there's something missing. So there are those who come into the church, and they have to come to the place where they recognize that, you know, maybe I need to be baptized again because I really didn't get it when I was baptized in the Baptist church or uh, whatever other church was out there. And even within the churches of God, did I really receive God's Spirit? Was I following an individual who was totally off track? Oh, he kept the Sabbath and the Holy Days, but in every other way he was off track, and he feels he's a prophet, and he's, you know, uh, is God really working through that individual?
Let's address those growing up in the church, and that's probably a good many here. You know, baptism is not an initiation right to, to join something. It's not where you get to be 18 years of age, well, now I have to join the church, or now I should be baptized. Now, there's, that's not wrong for you to think that way, but you, it has to go beyond that. It has to develop further than just the idea that, well, okay, I'm a certain age, so I should get baptized. I've found over the years that when someone comes to me that's grown up in the church and wants to be baptized, a lot of times I will start out after, you know, a few preliminaries, and I'll just ask them. Uh, I'll read maybe Acts the 10th chapter where uh, Peter rise up, kill, and eat these unclean animals and ask them to explain it. And I've been shocked how few really could explain the Scripture. And they say, well, maybe they weren't unclean animals let down on that sheet. Uh, Young people can sit here for, I was going to say decades, a decade and a half, whatever it might be, of conscious thought, and not get it, even though it's been explained in services. And that's just one example. There are others. Uh, eating with unwashed hands, uh, Mark the seventh chapter. And so, what is ever set before you eat? Asking a question for conscience sake. These these various scriptures. And, and the reason that I think it's important to do that is because young people need to come to the place where. This is something that you know. You've bought into it. You've proved it. Because these questions are out there. These are questions that you could be hit with someday. You might go down to the local university or or, um, community college, and you've got somebody there that you meet, and you get talking with them, and really a nice person. And ends up getting talking about religion, and they're religious, and they start asking certain questions. Maybe they get it from their minister or their parents or somebody else. They come up with these questions. And you need to know the answer. We don't want you to be baptized just because your parents are in the church. We want you to be baptized because you know this is the right thing, the right place to be, and you have this relationship between not just you and your parents, but you and God. So that if your parents were to go astray, and this is a question that I know my wife was asked when she was baptized, as I recall, about, you know, what if your parents were to leave the church? Well, I mean, you ask a lot of people that, oh, well, I'd stay in the church. Some, some hesitate a little bit. But what do you do? What do you do? Not that you fear that your parents are going to leave the church, but what, are, are you able to stand on your own two feet that you know this is right, And you're going to go this way no matter what. And you're not going to allow other people to take you away from where you should be. That's a tough thing. And sometimes there are wives or husbands who will stay when their mate leaves. Sometimes there are those, and I think that there's probably some right in here in this room, uh, whose parents go a different direction, but you stay because you knew this is where you should be. You have to know what the truth is and where it's being taught and where the work is being done and all these things. And so it's more than just an initiation, right? 
And it comes down to having a very personal relationship with your Creator and really knowing what the truth is and what, uh, what it is that God expects of you. It means that you are mature enough to shed youthful values. Youthful values. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, I'll refer to that again. What about the entertainment? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The things that are so important to all your friends, are you willing to set those things aside because you know that this is part of the world and you don't want to be a part of the world? That's a tough one. And it's something that takes us time to grow in, I suppose. We, we don't just come to that conclusion instantly in a day. What about your friends? Are you willing to set aside your friends? First Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 5, talks about how you don't, your, your, your friends think it's strange that you don't run with them to the same excessive riot, as it says there in the Old King James. The same excessive riot. In other words, you change, and they wonder, what's, what's the matter with you? Because you're not like, like they were. And that could even refer to people in the church, your friends in the church. Commitment to Christ over relationships. What about marriage? Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they be agreed? 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And if one's mate dies, you're free to marry only in the Lord. It says 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. How often we see Someone who gets baptized, I don't mean it's the majority, but you see it from time to time. Someone is baptized. They've, quote, counted the cost. They're willing to put Christ above all else. And then they meet this nice fellow at work or uh, someplace else, and pretty soon that takes them away from the church. Before long, they're keeping Christmas, and they're doing all kinds of other things. What about... Your future hopes and dreams, do you realize that some careers are not compatible with the truth? We had a fellow by the name of Dan Truitt. How many of you know who Dan Truitt is? Most of you don't. Okay. How many of you have seen The Sound of Music? Okay, that's most, most everybody. Well, he's Ralph. You know, he's the, the fellow that, uh, is it Liesel, I think, is, is in love with? They, now I'm 16, going on 17. That's the fellow. He was a member of the church at one time. He gave up that career because he realized that his acting career was not compatible with the truth. He was willing to give it up. He didn't stay, but nevertheless, he was a member of the Worldwide Church of God at one time. There was another Dan. His name was Dan Thomas, known as the Sundown Kid. He was a baseball player, and his idea, based on what I've been told from someone that, that knew him and dated him, was that he would, when he was good enough, then he'd keep the Sabbath. And that's exactly what he did. And as soon as he got in a slump, they sent him down to the next level and the next level. They weren't going to put up with that, him missing Friday nights and Saturday games. There are some careers that just simply aren't compatible. But if that is your God, if that is what you want more than anything else, then I guess that you need to go for it. But uh, it's a bad decision. 
So are we willing to give up perhaps our hopes and dreams? There are some people that want to be a model, some girls. They want to be a model or they want to be uh, a, a singer or an actress or, you know, some sort of a, uh, a famous person in that way. There are many different professions that just don't work with the truth, not in this age. Now, sometimes your repentance comes about a little bit differently from someone that comes in from the outside. You know, someone comes in from the outside who's lived a very worldly life and knows that he or she's lived a worldly life. They may be hit pretty strong with emotions over what they've done. Growing up in the church... It may take a while to, because you don't really think you're that bad. And and especially our our young ladies, sometimes they think, well, I'm not that bad. Well, no, you're a sinner, just like everybody else. But have you figured that out? Sometimes young girls and old women have this problem. I don't want to pick on old women. I didn't say little old women like I usually do. I, I remember more than one occasion talking to an older lady who just felt that she hadn't done anything wrong. Well, why do you want to be baptized? Well, I'm a sinner. Okay, you're a sinner. Uh, are, do you have any vanity? Oh, no, that's not me. Any greed? No, I've never been greedy in my life. Do you ever shade the truth a little bit? No, I always tell the truth. Well, why do you want to be baptized? Become a sinner. Well, can you tell me, did you, have you sinned in the last week? Oh, no. Oh, what about the last year? I don't think so. Well, why do you want to be bad? Well, I'm a sinner. In other words, they, they know the right words, but they don't get it. And, and sometimes you counsel somebody like that for a while and finally just say, okay, this, is, this, is per, this person's decision before God, and, and they have to live with it, but... Uh, you know, we have to come to the place that we recognize that we are a sinner and we should be able to figure out very specific ways in which we're a sinner. We're not that perfect. If, if we're that perfect, we're self-righteous. Uh, so that will always get us. But uh, you have to come to the place where you recognize your need for baptism. Now, let me just say before I, I quit here very quickly, there's another category of people and those are those who have been around the church for years, sometimes decades, and have never been baptized. Some who grew up in the church and now are 40 or 50 years of age, and they've never been baptized, but they've always come to church. They've always supported the church in every way. They perhaps tithe. I don't know. Uh, they, they, they keep the Sabbath. And you would never know that they weren't baptized. And so the question is, what holds you back? Is it pride? No one's going to tell me what to do. If I give in now, is it an admission that I've been wrong all these years and embarrassing? Well, if so, get over it. I remember a young fella, he was 26 years of age, which is, uh, he grew up in the church. He was about 26 at the time. He'd gone through Ambassador College. He graduated from Ambassador College. And he saw all these people getting baptized and Everybody gives him hand and applause or tells him how wonderful it is, and he just didn't want to be a part of that, that group. It reminds me of, 
I didn't like to sing in a group when I was young. You know, you'd be on a bus with a group of people and they're singing, not me. That's not very macho to sing. And everybody's having fun and I'd be miserable just not singing. And sometimes that was kind of the way he was. But you know what happened? He finally came to the realization, you know, I'm doing all these things. I'm tithing. I'm keeping the Sabbath. I'm avoiding unclean meats. I'm doing all the things I should do. But if I happen to die tomorrow in a car accident, or if Christ comes back, not that he would come back tomorrow, he said, what have I done this for? What good is it? I've put forth all this effort for no good reason. Because I, you know, I'm not going to be in the kingdom of God if I refuse to be baptized. But it was an embarrassing thing for him because he didn't want to be thought of as all those other people, just like I didn't want to be thought of as those happy, smiley people singing. It just didn't make sense to me. Sometimes people think, well, I'm not good enough. I've known that uh, to be the case. Or... I'm waiting for the minister to ask me about baptism. No, you have to take the initiative. And if you don't think you're good enough, talk to the minister. You'll never be good enough to be baptized. That's the whole reason you are baptized, is because you aren't good enough. But whatever the reason, are you willing to give up eternity? Or how long are you going to wait? How long are you going to take a chance? Sometimes people are waiting for an emotional repentance. Sometimes we describe repentance as being very emotional, and people are different. Some people come to tears. Other people are more analytical. They realize, I'm a sinner. I've done these things. I'm embarrassed by them. I'm repulsed by them, and I need to change. And so some people come to a very emotional state when they're baptized, and other people, maybe it's less emotional, but it's just as deep of a repentance as the person who's emotional. So if you have any questions, talk to a minister. You know, baptism is an outward expression of an inward intent. It pictures our repentance, our putting to death of our old self, and putting our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His shed blood, that our sins can be forgiven. It is necessary for salvation. Again, there might be some unusual exceptions to that, but basically, uh, as, as I've said, it's necessary for salvation. Certainly, we should desire that, even if it's impossible for whatever reason. But my hope is that this sermon causes you to think about the need for baptism. And also, I hope that those of us who have been baptized as we go forward, not just at Passover time, but throughout the year, that we'll think about what it was that we did at baptism. We put to death the old man. Are we continuing to put to death that old man? Are we allowing part of it to come to the top of the water again? And that we'll review and remember what it was that we committed to to God. So, brethren, let's think about baptism and the meaning of it whether you're looking forward to baptism or whether you're looking backward on your baptism.